this is Deuteronomy uh, chapter 8, verses 11 through 20. Uh, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flock multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied, and that all you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do good, to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Let the nation, Like the nations that the Lord makes you, to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. This is the word of God. Let's take a moment to pray, guys. Father, we thank you for this time and this space that you provide for us. Thank you for giving us ears to hear and a heart um, that is open to the work of the Spirit of God as we listen to your word. Father, plant your word in us, let it grow, let it take deep root, and let it bear fruit in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, we're going to talk about what it means to forget the Lord, right? Um, what, is it, what does it look like when you forget the Lord? Um, what does it look like when you forget something uh, painful, right? Um, you know, when uh, in the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, Joseph actually says that uh, the Lord has caused him to forget his affliction. And in the context in which he says that is he has a son named Manasseh. And in naming his son, he names him with the meaning of, the, of God helping him forget um, all his suffering, his pain, his loss the betrayal he's experienced. So in that sense, forgetting the affliction is, is kind of a good thing, right? But in this sense, what does it mean to forget the Lord? And what I want to show you from this passage is that it's not just a mental lapse. It's not just about, oh man, I didn't do my devos today. I forgot. It's not just about, like, if you forgot to take your omega-3s or your vitamins, whatever, or that you forgot to, you know, deposit a check. It's not like that. When it comes to forgetting the Lord, when people forget God, isn't it interesting that people forget what God has done for them, but people rarely forget what they do for God? Right? Let me say that again. It's very interesting that when it comes to forgetting the Lord, people don't, people don't really forget what all the things they've done for God, but people forget what God has done for them. What do I mean by that? What I mean is, you know, when it comes to things in life, maybe feeling good about yourself or accomplishing something or... Maybe when there's a falling out, right? The thing that you always remember is all the good that you have done, <laughs> right? For that person, for that cause, right? But when it comes to good things happening in life or when it comes to sufferings that come about, it's very easy for us to forget what God has done for us, to forget all of his provision. You know, uh, Duke prayed after the offering was given, um, you know, that we should be grateful and thankful for what he has done for us. 
um, it's very easy for us to forget that. And it's a really good reminder for us. Um, that's exactly what's happening here in this passage. When it comes to forgetting the Lord, it's really not about us forgetting what we did for God. It's always about us forgetting what God has done for us. If you look in the, in the, in the passage that Duke just read, it says that uh, when, we, when, when his people, uh, what is it? Uh, God is warning his people, take care lest you forget the Lord your God. And then he goes on to all these descriptions, beginning in, let's say, verse, 5, uh, verse 14, right? And it describes all the things that God has done. And he begins with the way that God has saved them from Egypt, from slavery, right? So he says, the first thing, and the most important thing for God here, is that when we forget God, right, we forget the importance of salvation. The cross of Christ, and for Christians today, the cross of Christ becomes more detached, more distant. We're not emotionally as affected by the God who died, the sinless one who was held guilty and who was punished. When we forget God, the impact of that cross both in our minds, in our hearts, and the way that we live our lives, we forget about that. It becomes less powerful. It becomes less real, right? That's the first thing that goes, is his salvation. The second thing is his provision, right? He talks about how God led his people through the great and terrifying wilderness, right? With its fiery serpents, its scorpions, its thirsty ground where there wasn't any water. And he talks about how he provided them water where there should be no water. He, he brought water out of the flinty rock. He talks about how God has fed his people in the wilderness with manna that you couldn't find anywhere. It just came down from heaven as a special moment, uh, a special provision of, of his grace and his sustenance for that specific people in that time period. And the fathers, they didn't know this, right? They didn't have that manna. They were slaves in Egypt. They didn't have that kind of miraculous experience. But even that manna became loathsome to them. It became hateful. They didn't like it anymore. You know, and that's the nature of the human, of, of human, of our condition, is that even something as miraculous as manna that you can't find anywhere, even that, when you have that and only that, it, for a long enough time, it becomes something that you don't want anymore. It becomes common when it's actually really uncommon. And what that shows is after his salvation, after we forget, when it comes to forgetting about God, we forget the impact of his salvation. After that, we begin to forget his provision, all the ways that he sustained us, all the ways that he's guarded us and protected us. Right? We begin to stop thanking him for it. We begin to stop connecting what we have right now with who he is, right? We spend less time in prayer. We spend less time talking about all the ways that God has sustained us with other people. And after his provision, we begin to forget about his discipline, right? He says that the reason why he led them through the wilderness was so that he can humble them and test them. And what happens is, when we forget the Lord, all that happens in our lives, that wilderness wandering for Israel, right? it becomes just that. It, it, it just becomes a part of their lives. There's no narrative outside of it. It's just human experience. It's just the way things are. And I just need to go through one day at a time, and that's all there is. There is really no God. There's really not... The God who split the Red Sea, who brought the ten plagues to Egypt, it's not really there anymore. And when we look at, the, at, at situations in our lives that God is using to humble us and to teach us and to test our hearts, not because he doesn't know what's in them, but because we don't know what's in our own hearts. And he's testing us in order that we can learn what's in our own hearts. You see, that narrative is gone. 
our life situations, our experiences and our encounters become just situations. We don't see it as God disciplining us. We don't see it as God teaching us and humbling us. We just see it as this is how life is and everybody goes through similar situations and some are luckier than others. I just need to make the best of this. And you see, we, take, we, we change the narrative when we forget God. It becomes a different kind of story. This is interesting because, um, you know, uh, multiple people have told me that what happens with um, when you talk about a certain situation in your life and you bring God into it, with people who aren't really used to talking about their situations with God, they're like, well, you know, don't, it, it, they, they connect it with something extreme like the Crusades. It's like, you know, something's happening and you're justifying it with the name of God or you're justifying it with the Bible, right? And yeah, there are unhealthy moments and sometimes dangerous and uh, moments where people use the Bible to further their agendas and their ambitions. But even though those extreme things happen, because those things exist, we can't just throw out all narrative altogether, right? So when things happen in our lives and we understand it through the lens of scripture or through the lens of our faith, right? People who tend to criticize that, there's an assumption that lies there. The assumption is you have a religious lens through which you are understanding your life and the world around you and your feelings and your situation, the assumption is, but I don't have that lens. I actually see clearly. And it's the same kind of argument when someone says there are no absolute truths. <laughs> what you've done by saying something like that is that you've stated an absolute truth. The absolute truth for you is that there is none. So by asserting there is no absolute truth, you've actually defeated your own argument by assuming that there is. Does that make sense? That's what's happening there, right? When you create a narrative, right? Or, or when, you, when you criticize the narrative of scripture, right? Over a situation, over life experience, what you're doing is you're assuming that you don't have a narrative. When the fact is, with any given situation, everybody brings a narrative to it. The, the difference for believers is that we look to scripture. We look to revelation to own that narrative. And there is no pretense. There's no pretense of us saying, well, we don't, we're the only ones that see clearly. What we say is that it's God who is an objective reality who has revealed to us the truth, right? We're not creating a narrative. The narrative has been given to us. Now, here's the thing. The, the last thing that people forget about God is his purpose. That in any, and it, it, this speaks with the narrative that I was talking about, with any situation in life, when, when you forget God, when you begin to forget the Lord, you begin to see, especially like um, hard situations and circumstances, like Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, you begin to see that as having no purpose and no meaning and no direction. It becomes meaningless, right? And again, um, I'm speaking again on what I've already said, is that when you take that narrative out, it's just that situation, and all you're doing is surviving and trying to do your best in life to be a little bit ahead of the other person that you know of, right? That's what it becomes. Um, that's, what, that's what people forget about God. It's not, what, it's not the good things that people do for others or that people do for a cause. When we forget God, we forget what God has done for us. His salvation becomes less real. His provision becomes no longer a provision, but luck or chance or opportunity. His discipline ceases to be discipline, and it just becomes unluckiness or unfortunate or not being born with a silver spoon or 
being disadvantaged or underprivileged, and that's all there is to that. And when it comes to purpose, there is no purpose. You become the you become you become the creator of your narrative. You create your own purpose. You begin to self-actualize what you dream to be the purpose of your life, of why you are here on earth. And so, when you begin to forget God, it's not the good things that you've done in your life, but it's what God has done. And what it what it looks what forgetting God looks like in a person's life is multi-layered. When you look at verse 11 through 13, uh, 11 through 14, right? There are three components, according to this passage, of what it looks like to forget the Lord, what it looks like in a person's life. Number one, when you look at verse 11, it says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God. And it uses the word by, which shows that this is the way that something has, is happening, right? When you say, this is happening by this, right? You're, when you're saying, uh, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by whatever follows, you're saying that forgetting the Lord will come about by what I'm about to say. This is how it happens, right? And so in verse 11, it says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments. And so you see, when it comes to keeping God's commandments, it's not a means to be in a moral state or in a right relationship with God. Keeping his commandments is not a means of being an ethical, moral person. It's actually the response of someone who is already right with God. Because when you keep God's commandments, that's the means by which you remember the Lord not the means by which you create a relationship with him, right? So keeping the commandments of God and keeping his rules and his statutes, which God commands, right? That's how we remember what God has done for us, right? That's not how we try to establish a relationship with him, right? The second thing is that's happening is prosperity. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes we can easily say, which is not correct, we can easily say that prosperity causes us to forget the Lord. But it's actually not. If you look in this, in this passage, prosperity can either be a factor in someone forgetting the Lord, or it can be a factor in which they remember the Lord. Um, let, me, let me point you to verse 17 and verse 18. In verse 17, it says, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and, my, and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Right? So there's one worldview where it says, I am prosperous because... I've done well because I'm strong, right? And then in verse 18, it says, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. You see, God is not denying that you have a part in your prosperity or in the wealth that you have. But what he's saying is you're not going back far enough in giving credit, Right? You only went to the part where you had a, you participated in your wealth. And he's saying, the fact that you were even able to get the wealth, I gave you that ability. So you see, the question is not about whether it's prosperity that causes, you know, some people think that money is the root of all evil, right? Because of what they read in the New Testament, right? But it's the love of money over God, or that competes with God, right? It's not the money itself. It's not the prosperity itself. So when we forget God, what it looks like is there is a 
First you, for, first, you forget. I'm sorry. Let me rephrase that again. When you forget God, what happens is what God has done for you becomes less impactful in your mind and in your heart internally. That's the first thing that happens. What that leads to is you less and less living by God's word. Right? While that's happening... There are good things happening in your life. This is specifically for people who are transitioning. That's why the title is called Transition. This is specifically for people who are transitioning into success, right? If Numbers is a book about failure, Joshua is a book about success. And Deuteronomy is right in the middle. It's a book about transition from failure to success, right? Now, here's the thing. So while that's happening internally, they're forgetting what God has done for them becomes less real. It becomes less important, less impactful, less, less influential. You're not emotionally moved when you hear the message of the gospel. Uh, your response is not brokenness and awe and like, you know, you're, you're just, you know, throwing yourself at the feet of the cross. But rather, I've, heard, I've already heard this story before. I already know this story, right? When you read it, you're just going through the motions. When you sing it, you're just going through the motions. When you teach it to someone, when you're listening it, you know, whatever it is, you're just going through the motions. It's just, it's just normal. It's common. It's like manna for the, for the people of Israel. It was a miraculous event, and it was a miraculous provision, but because they ate it so much, it became, they're like, you know, this, we hate this stuff. We want meat. We want something else, right? Now, here's the thing. I say that a lot right now, but when there's prosperity, when you're transitioning into success and that's happening, the cross is not mentally, heart-wise, emotionally impacting you, and then now you're experiencing more and more success, what happens is in your heart, it becomes lifted up for, according to verse 14. And what that means Right? We read that. What that means is you can find what that means in verse 17. It says, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. And what that's about is you become God in your heart. And you could say all the right things. Right? You could sing all the right things. You can teach all the right things. Right? You can attend all the right things, right? But you're actually forgetting the Lord. So you can be in worship, you could be dressed right, you could be preaching, you could be singing, you could be praying. You could be doing Bible study with your boyfriend or girlfriend, okay? You could be teaching the gospel to your kids, okay? But what's going on is that you're actually forgetting God. Because to God, forgetting God is not about leaving this complete, living this completely godless life where you're not doing Bible study, where you're not praying, you're not singing, you're not teaching anyone the gospel, you're not learning the gospel from anyone. That's not, that's not what forgetting God looks like all the time. According to this passage, it's more nuanced than that. You can be doing all the right things. You can be even believing all the right things, right? But you could still be forgetting God because in the heart, that's where the issue is. In the heart, everything that you're doing that is that in your life that is transitioning into a more successful life for that context, now you can forget God when you're transitioning into failure too, right? where you've experienced success, but now you're like in a moment of failure, where you're failing at work, you're failing in your family, you're failing with your friends, you're failing with whatever, your academics, right? But in this passage specifically, it's about transitioning into success. And what, what's happening is they're about, they're about to become a person, they're about to live lives that they have never known, right? 40 years they were homeless. They didn't have anything. And then when you read verses 12 through 
uh, 13, they're about to transition into a life where they are no longer nomadic or itinerant, but where they're settled. And not only that, if you look at the amount of, if you look at the type of prosperity and the movement and the progress of prosperity, it begins from the most basic kind of success to the more premium, luxurious success. What I mean by that is when you look at verse 12 through 13, it begins with eating food and not going hungry. That's the most basic kind of human success you can have, right? That's so far removed from us, for a lot of us, in this kind of society and culture. But that's where it begins, because they didn't have that, right? And so it says in verse 12 through 13, when you have eaten and are full, and then it goes to the next level of success, and have built good houses and live in them. So they have, they're no longer going hungry, but they're also no longer itinerant. They're no longer nomadic. They're, they're, they're settling down, right? And then it moves from just settling down to having a stable life where you're no longer fighting for survival to when your herds and flocks multiply. This is a society that, uh, where the economy is not money, but it's farm animals, right? You, you, that's where you get your goods from. You could trade with your animals, right? That's the currency, right? So now they're comfortable enough to do economic exchange, right? Without, without it affecting their, their most basic survival needs, like going hungry and being fed, right? In an agricultural society where you have animals, as your currency, the next step is to have money. Because when you're living in a, in, a, in a life where your currency is animals, right, you don't need money. And for those kind of people who all, all they need is animals to survive, for them to be able to trade their animals for actual currency, which is the next level, your silver and your gold is multiplied, it says in those two verses, right? There's a lot of luxury there. There's, there's a big margin and buffer, an economic buffer. So there's prosperity. What I'm trying to show you is that there's this increasing prosperity that is moving forward, right? Which is not a bad thing. And what God is addressing is that in the midst of that, what's happening in your heart, right? What's happening in your heart is that his salvation, his provision, his discipline, his purpose for you, that's becoming less and less impactful in how you feel and how you think in your internal life. And it's more about, it moves to this life where you're experiencing all this prosperity without that narrative. You're experiencing all this growth and progress without the narrative of his salvation, his provision, his discipline, and his purpose. And when you have all of these kind of life experiences that moves you forward to a more successful life, without that theological narrative, you begin to create your own narrative to what's happening to you right now. And that narrative is specifically in verse 17. And this is a narrative that has existed thousands of years ago and it still continues to exist today in how we understand our work and how we understand our success. We begin to attribute it to ourselves instead of something that God has done, instead of something that God has given to us and gifted to us, we begin to see it as something we have done and something that we've gifted to ourselves, right? And that's what's happening, that's what it means to forget God. So forgetting God is not just, man, I forgot to do my, I forgot to read a Bible verse today before heading out of the house, or I forgot to, you know, do my prayer. That's not forgetting God, right? You could be in prayer and be forgetting God, right? You could be singing and you could be forgetting God. You could be teaching a gospel lesson to someone. 
to a child, to a friend, to, a, to an acquaintance. You could be giving the gospel to someone and still forget God because, you know what? You attribute all that to yourself. Singing becomes about how good you are. Praying becomes how eloquent you are or how thoughtful you are. Giving the gospel becomes how proactive you are or how persuasive you are or how apologetically competent you are. Right? It becomes all about my might and, uh, what is it? What are, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. In other words, by my might, by my power, I pray well. By my might, by my power, I sing well. By my might and by my power, people come to Christ. And when that happens in your heart, you have forgotten God. You're not doing anything for God. You've actually forgotten Him. If that makes sense. When you attribute all that to yourself, you've forgotten God, the very God that you're claiming to serve and love and proclaim. And the way that, how that feels, is ultimately you lose meaning. When you do that over and over enough, because you've lost the narrative, and all there is is success that you're attributing to yourself, you become tired of it. It gets old, just like manna. No matter how good it is, no matter how miraculous it is, when you have it enough without that narrative, it becomes trite, common. And if you, if you get low enough and you do the same thing over and over again, it becomes something that you hate. Just like the Israelites hate it. And where that brings you is that when you're in a moment of life where you desperately need help, God becomes a means to an end, not an end of itself. You see, God is there because he's good for your work. God is there because he's good for your family, for your kids. He's, good, he's there because he's good for your morality and for your ethics. God is there in your life because he's good for your friendships, for your self-actualizing progress. He's there to make you more successful, right? And this is the warning that he gives. This is so important to God. You know, in our society, I've, I think I've said this a few times. I've shared it with Praise Team in our devotion. We have devotion during our practice before we meet for worship. When people are successful, we are very forgiving of their character or to be more precise for their lack of character. Because they're so successful, because they get such amazing results, even if they are a tyrant, even if they're duplicitous, even if they are pragmatists or whatever, even if they destroy their families for that success, right? We're willing to see that as, man, this guy, he just, he was so, he was such a visionary that he was willing to sacrifice everything for this. And now look at every, look at how society has benefited from his work after he's left the path of destruction, right? That's our culture. We idolize success to the point that we will forgive people with bad or lack of good character, right? God's standard is not, well, it's character, but don't worry about success. Don't worry about quality of work. Don't worry about excellence. Don't worry, yeah, you could be as sloppy as you can be, but if you have good character, that's okay. That's not God's standard. 
right? God's standard is not poor quality. Actually, if you are comfortable with bringing any kind of poor quality to anything that you do for God, it, it's actually, it shows that you have bad character because you don't understand how your work and the fruit of your labor is an outflow of God's love for you and your love for God. That the fruit, the quality you bring to work is an extension of the quality relationship that you have with God, right? In other words, let's see, I'm trying to pick a vocation that no one here has. <laughs> Anybody, can you guys help me out? I don't know. All right, I'll just pick pastor, gosh. <laughs> Which one? A vet, a vet. okay. A veter, anybody here going to be a veter, a vet? No? Okay. A vet who believes in God who's a Christian. What is one of the ways that a vet can be the most faithful Christian as a vet? Right? It's not going to their, what do you call that, animal hospital, and then doing Bible study with their coworkers. It's not about going and before you turn the key to the building to open it, that you pray over it with hands up in the air. That's not, that's not what a faithful vet looks like. You know what a faithful vet looks like? A faithful vet looks like a vet who receives the animals and gives them the best quality care because of the care that the vet knows she or he has from God himself. It's because when we are broken, God healed us. And so the vet takes that redemptive narrative, that gospel narrative, and implements it in how they practice. And you see, that's what I mean by you can't justify poor quality work if you are really trying to be faithful to God and having good character before God. Right? So there are two extremes. There's one extreme that's prevalent in our culture that says, as long as you are successful, you could have poor character and it's totally okay. And then you have the other extreme where it says, as long as you have really good moral character, then the quality of your work, you know, it doesn't matter. You could be mediocre and that's fine. Right? Now, I'm not denying there are seasons where we struggle with the quality of how we work for God. Nor am I denying that um, our faithfulness is uh, expressed and communicated through how we work, right? But what I am saying is that when it comes to forgetting the Lord, and remembering him, the key, it begins in the heart. That's very different from saying it's only about the heart, okay? Saying that remembering the Lord begins with the heart is very different from saying that remembering the Lord is only about your heart. Because when you say it begins with the heart, you are creating room for how that looks like in your actions and how you live your life. But when you say remembering the Lord is only about your heart, what you've done is you've created an unbiblical space for yourself where as long as you feel like you're good on the inside, it really doesn't matter what your life looks like, you're still good with God. And there's no evidence for that. Because when you are right with God, when God has redeemed you, when he has saved you, there's fruit that gets born that reveals itself in how you communicate. Look at James, right? James talks a lot about communication and how you live your life on the outside. But it's not just about behavioral modification and moral ethical living. That comes from the heart, the state of the heart. And that's what this passage in Deuteronomy is talking about. And that's what it looks like to forget the Lord. 
You see, forgetting the Lord doesn't look like a complete atheist who doesn't worship or whatever. We here, we could be sitting here and standing here right now, and we could be forgetting God right now. Because in our heart, right, we could be saying, by my power and by, by the might of my hand, I've made myself. I'm a self-made man. Right? That's what it could look like. Remembering the Lord, if you look in verse 18, looks like this. Very briefly, and I'm going to close with this. Verse 18, if you read it with me silently while I read it out loud, remembering, if forgetting the Lord looks like that, you forget the narrative of what God has done for you, but during that time, there's this increasing of success, right, and prosperity, and then you begin, because of the lack of that God-centered narrative, you begin to create your own narrative, and you begin to live only with what's going on in your life outside right now, and you don't address the state of your heart as you are experiencing prosperity and success, right? You begin to replace that God-centered narrative with a me-centered narrative that says, I did this, and you play show and tell with the people around you, right? This is what remembering God looks like. Verse 18, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. If you read carefully the language of verse 18, what it's saying is remembering the Lord your God looks like this. You continue in the midst of success and prosperity and progress. You continue to have that God-centered narrative where you say, God saved me. He rescued me. He provides for me. He disciplines me. He has a purpose for me. He has given me my success. He has given me my wealth. He's given me the ability to do what I do. That's continually there. And when, you're, when your heart tries to be misaligned with that, you, bring your, you, you open yourself up to the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of God's truth in your life, and you let yourself be convicted. And then you repent. And then you say, Lord, it's you. You're the one who saved me. You're the one who provides for me. You're the one who's disciplining me right now. You're the one who has a purpose for me. That narrative continues to coexist with the prosperity that you, are that you are experiencing and the whole purpose of God giving you your success, whether it's at work, family, with your friends, in the city, what, in your recreation, whatever it looks like, in your hobbies, right? That success, it's not about you finding happiness from it. If you look in verse 18, the language of purpose is there. The vocabulary of purpose. Right? First, the verse states, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. He's saying that's your narrative for your success. And then he uses the word that he may. That he may shows purpose. So it's saying God has given you this wealth so that what? He may confirm his covenant. What does that mean? <sighs> Guys, the way we look at our success today, we shoot for success so that that success can make us happy. It can satisfy us and fulfill us. You know what you've done for yourself? You've created an idol. You've taken a good thing that God has given you and you've worshipped, you're beginning to worship it. Right? You're beginning to find meaning and ultimate happiness from it. You're willing to allow that, that success to fulfill, to try to fulfill you, right? God gives you, why does, why does God give you success? That he may confirm his covenant, meaning that God has given you life. And in that life, he has given you success so that through that life of success, he can show how true 
his plan is to you in your heart and to the world. That's the purpose. So your success is not a means to happiness. It is a means to showing God to the world. And if you really let that sink in, the way you study, the way you choose a major, the way you choose a field, the way that you will teach your children will change. It's not about being, being proud of what you have done anymore. It's about using your success to love those that God loves. Because now you are sourcing your happiness, your joy, your, your sense of fulfillment and satisfaction from that narrative. You see, you see how it all connects? When you get rid of that narrative, you're gonna be, okay, can I use philosophical language? You're gonna feel existentially needy because you've gotten rid of that narrative. And now you're going to look to your success to find the happiness that God was giving to you through what, who he is and what he has done in his salvation, provision, discipline, and purpose. But because you, you've gotten rid of that narrative and now all you have is the success, now the success becomes your narrative. Right? That becomes your source. Instead of keeping the God-centered narrative and your success becomes a vehicle to continue that narrative with others that God puts in your life so that now they can understand that narrative and that as God gives them success and God is working on their heart, they can use the success for the same, uh, that God can use the success for the same reason, to give that narrative to people where that narrative is missing and they're looking to those things that they find success in in order to be happy. That's what forgetting the Lord looks like according to this passage, Deuteronomy 8, for people in transition who are wandering in the wilderness. They've worked so hard to get to this point because they've, they've arrived at the Jordan River before and because they listened to the bad report of the eights or the ten spies, was it eight or ten? Yeah, but Joshua and Caleb, it was ten spies. Joshua and Caleb gave a good report. They're like, we can take this land because God has promised it to us, right? But it was the other spies who came. They're like, there is no way we're going to be able to take this land. We're grasshoppers. We're going to lose. We're going to die. We're going to perish, Right? And then what happens? God says, okay, you think you're going to perish? I will make that come true. Except you're not going to perish by facing the giants, right, in, in, in the promised land. But I'm going to make you wander in the wilderness for 40 years for an entire generation of people. And you're going to die in the wilderness, but your kids are going to grow up and they're going to pass over. And so now the kids are grown up in Deuteronomy, and they're looking toward that transition into promised land. They, to them, they're like, oh man, I grew up seeing my parents fail. I grew up seeing my parents struggle and work so hard. And now I, f I think we're at the point where we're going to arrive and we're going to face that success. And God is promising that it'll happen. And at that transitional stage, God is saying to them, beware. Take care, lest you forget, lest you say in your heart, by your might and by your power, that you've gotten to this point, right? Because the tendency is, if you grow up with struggling parents or you grow up struggling, period, right, you're going to want control and you're going to want to make sure your life is a certain way and you're going to work hard for it, right? I know this because... This was my story, right? Don't get rid of that narrative. That narrative about what God has given you. And as he has given you success and you are transitioning into that life, right? Remember, 
the work of your hands and the fruit of your labor is not the source from which you should try to create a narrative of happiness, but it is a means to share that joy that comes from God alone through his salvation, provision, purpose, and his discipline with others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us together so that we're able to look into your word and really tackle our cultural values and the values we grew up in our families. And even though we're, many of us are, I don't, well, I don't know if many of us, but even though some of us come from successful Asian homes where you have traditional values and traditional families and we don't consider our families broken in the way that society defines family, broken families. But Father, help us to see the brokenness in successful families. Help us to see the poverty in morally wealthy families. Help us to see our bankruptcy in the midst of having successful families. And Lord, help us to understand that along the way of growing up, we've either lost or we're struggling to not lose that narrative that you are the God who has given us the ability and the power and the mind to get the success that we are beginning to enjoy today or that is right around the corner. Father, help us not to make the mistake of previous generations. Help us to source our happiness from the fountain of living waters, from the God who is joy itself. Lord, help us to find our greatest joy in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please arise with me as we sing our closing song.